1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Robin Maria Stewart at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. It's May 30th, 2018, and we'll start you guys off with a nice, easy one, which is, why wine?
2: (laughs) That's not that easy. (laughs) Well, I think that, um, do you mean why did we choose wine in the beginning, or why wine now, or... Yes,
1: that's both of those. of those things.
2: (laughs) Well, I can speak for myself and say that in the beginning, I was very attracted to the um, wine and food component, which still remains an important part of our lives and what we do, but um, I really um, very much appreciate the way wine and food, bring people together. And I think that um, that's really one of the greatest things that we do is um, create something, not just the wine, but the entire experience where people come together in community and friendships are made and um, life is celebrated, which is a very important part of life, maybe the most.
0: Before I tell my perspective, What's interesting is it's a common ground, and especially the uh, the, environment, the political environment we're in today, it's nice to have a common ground. And we, we joke about um, how we, we sell to the Catholics, and the Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians, <laughs> and even the Baptists, the doctors, the lawyers, <laughs> Republicans, Democrats. Sure. It seems to be a common ground. And I think Maria, um, she's a booty, for sure. And uh, I think you know. Just to reiterate, food and wine bring people together. Sure. So my story goes back way before I knew that wine was something I wanted to do. I recall uh, my grandparents had a summer home on Lake Erie mm-hmm. on the Canadian shore, and it was it would be summertime and very humid there. It's it's near Buffalo, New York, kind of at kind of summer humidity. And I remember whenever my grandmother would turn on the television, and this is when they were rabbit ears and like one and a half stations, (laughs) um, and the dust that had been collecting in that that television, and it was about this big, um, would start to heat up and I would start sneezing. And I realized that my nose was very sensitive and uh, it was not a positive thing for me. And one day, and this is many years later, when I realized that wine is about tasting and smelling, I, I said, it, it was kind of like that, that uh, who's the guy, Steve, the comedian with the arrow through his head? Steve kind of, Martin. Steve Martin, was, you know, I found my purpose. <laughs> I realized, wow, this is actually something that I could use rather than something that's a problem. So that was pre-understanding anything about wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, You may be learning things about me, (laughs) but for me, truly, uh, when I was about 17, and Maria's heard this story, I visited my brother in England, and uh, at 17, the age of legal consumption in Buffalo, New York, which is where I grew up, was 18. And I was seventeen, of course. So you know what college students do. You know what high school students do. But um, I visited my brother. He took me as soon as I landed to um, someone who ended up becoming his future father-in-law's house. And it was early in the morning, and just to keep the you know very PC story, but basically this gentleman walked out of his house. And he had a silver tray and crystal flutes and 61 Bollinger, which is a really great vintage and a really unique style of, of champagne. Mm-hmm. And my experience with anything alcoholic beverages was 3-2 Beer and Boone's Farm, and the good stuff was Matus. And when <laughs> this was presented to me, I thought, this is amazing. This is the smell and the taste and the, the beauty of it. And um, that was really the beginning for me. Hmm. I didn't know that I would go into the wine business. I, since then I went and got a degree in biochemistry at RPI and um, was a research tech for two and a half years in the biochemistry field in Houston, Texas, lovely place. And, um, but I had spent all the $750 a month that I had as an income working as a research tech that didn't go to rent in groceries um, on decent wine. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. So I left, went to California, and kind of, there's an interlude between there, I mean it was all about wine, Mm -hmm. and between when I met Maria, but it was all about...
2: Well, Rob's brother, the one he mentioned that he was visiting in England, uh, was living in Southern Oregon at the time, and so Rob went from Texas to California to go to UC Davis and learn how to make wine, and was there for a semester. Yeah,
0: and Ann Noble, who is one of the authors of the Aroma Wheel, mm-hmm. and now there's a bazillion aroma wheels, but it was it was a, basically a vocabulary that wine people could communicate in relayed on the same plane, mm-hmm. um, she said to me, you have a degree, you don't need, it. You need another degree. Uh, just get out and get a job, start working in wineries. So I did work at Hans Cornell for six months after that and then moved to Southern Oregon and ultimately ended up working um, at a vineyard called Valley View Vineyard
1: mm-hmm.
0: in uh, 1981. And was there for about four years. The, 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 the cliff notes are that I worked at Valley View then I was hired to be the winemaker at a brand new facility in eastern Washington um, called Staten Hills. And... Which
2: doesn't exist anymore.
0: I mean, the building's there, there's another one. But the
2: winery's been purchased several times. Yeah.
0: And um, was there about ten years. That's kind of where Maria and I intersected in our lives um, during that stay. Interestingly enough, and it, we actually met on this campus. You can tell that part,
2: <laughs> well, um, i I started my wine career when I was living in chicago. i had I had a degree in um, English and journalism with a concentration in public relations, and so went to work for um, uh, Bloomingdale's in Chicago. It was the first store that Bloomingdale's opened outside of New York. and <laughs> I don't know if you know this about Bloomingdale's, but they're famous for their very lavish and extravagant events. So it was there that I learned how to do event planning. And, but I, I worked there for about a year and a half, and then I um, switched jobs and um, went to work for a small wine distributor in Chicago who specialized in boutique wineries. And so this was, like, the late 80s, and... Um, in particular, Burgundy. Well, boutique wineries from all over the world. He had a real passion for Burgundy. He was an Englishman, And um, a lot of English people uh, kind of fell in love with either Burgundy or Bordeaux back in the 70s. So he was still very much captivated by that. And then, um, I think it was in the early 80s when Stephen Carey, who um, was making his own wine at the time, um, packed up his pickup truck, little red pickup truck, full of samples of all the pioneering Oregon wineries and drove east and hit every major city going east, looking for somebody who would represent these wines, who believed in them and would sell them. And when he got to Chicago, he found Peter Wilkins, my boss, and um, and Peter was an early adopter. He definitely believed in the potential of Oregon Pinot Noir. And um, eventually we had, the founding Oregon Pinot Noir labels on every important wine list in Chicago. Mm. And um, my first day of work, I really didn't know that much about wine. I had worked in restaurants, and I knew how to serve it, and I, and I knew a little bit, but I didn't know very much about wine at all. And my first day of work at Barrique, I walked in and David Adelsheim was there. <laughs> and he had come to work the market. We represented his Wine, as along with Ponzi and what was then and Rath and Blosser and Bethel Heights and Irie and all the founding wineries, mm-hmm. whose names you know well. Mm-hmm. And um, so my boss, my new boss asked David Adelsheim to spend a couple hours with me teaching me about Oregon and the Willamette Valley and why Pinot Noir, etc. So it was kind of a wonderful I had no idea I was in, you know, I was working with such a that who would end up being so historically significant to our industry. But um, over the years that I worked there, every time we would have winemakers or winery owners come and visit us in Chicago and work the market, which is still the way we all sell wine in other cities, um, I always had the greatest affinity for the ones who came from Oregon. I seemed to relate to them the best and enjoy them the best. And um, eventually, in 1990, I, um, there was Bethel Heights offered a sales competition for whoever could sell the most 1987 Bethel Heights Chardonnay <laughs> that summer. And the prize was to come to the International Pinot Noir Celebration, which was then in its infancy. Right. Um, and... And
0: that was a tough vintage
2: for Chardonnay. 87, yeah. Anyway, I won the contest, which they were pretty sure I would do because I was very eager to come to Oregon. I had only been here once before and not affiliated with wine at the time. And um, I won the trip and I came out here and stayed at Marilyn and Terry's house, who are some of the partners at Bethel Heights. And uh, Rob was here as a featured winemaker for the IPNC, because he was making a little Oregon Pinot Noir, or Washington Pinot Noir. Well, I was making... Was it Oregon? It was
0: Oregon Pinot Noir from Forest Vineyard. Oh, right. It was from Forest Vineyards. Right. So, we were the one winery in Washington that was chosen that year to participate at
2: IPNC. Because most Washington wineries don't make Pinot Noir. Right. Anyway, uh, that was when the entire IPNC event basically more or less took place in Dillon Hall. There would be, um, and Dillon was very different than it is now, no air conditioning for openers. Um, there would be uh, opening remarks, morning seminar, everyone would go outside and stand around, and meanwhile the dining room would get flipped to serve lunch. Everyone would come back in and have lunch. Everyone would go back out and they would set up the dining room for for the afternoon seminar. It was. Um, it was really the only big space to have events. And, but it was that Friday morning before the opening remarks, we were standing out on the terrace in front of Dylan Hall, and Marilyn Webb said to me, Maria, have you met Rob Stewart? And I hadn't ever heard of him or his winery, <laughs> but, um, but that's when we met. And then a year later, Rob was still making wine in Washington. I went back to Chicago. A year later, I moved out here to Oregon. And a year after that, in August of 92, we got married. Actually, at the
0: Flying M Am- At Am- the Flying M Ranch wow. in Yamhill. And neither of us were living here.
2: No. Rob. Well, Rob was in Yakima. I lived in Portland for a little while, and then I moved to Yakima. And then, that was about the same time that the winery Rob was working for, Staten Hills, sold, sold to a Japanese firm and um, had been a family winery before that, and so it wasn't really the same, become much, became much more corporate, and mm-hmm. the people who owned it didn't really understand what was necessary to make fine wine, so he was uh, ready to move on, and I was ready to, I only lived in Yakima, Yakima, ended up for about a year and a half, but we moved here to McMinnville in spring of 94, when Rob took the job as winemaker at Erath Vineyards.
0: And Maria had been ready to move out of Yakima for about a year and a half.
2: Just <laughs> yeah, so from five minutes after I got there. It was not quite the same as living in Chicago or Portland. <laughs> so we moved here, and um, uh, at the time, when we moved here, we were one of the only, the only other wine family connected to the wine industry living in the city of McMinnville was um, Rich and Robin Cushman. And... Um, most people who worked for wineries, well, most wineries didn't really have that many employees. The owners did everything sure. in those days. They made the wine, they sold the wine, they did the books, they answered the phone, everything. And so um, they lived in the county on their property usually, and, um, and the few employees there were lived mostly in Portland and commuted out. So we were really one of the, um, when we moved here, there wasn't this wine community living and thriving in McMinnville, but now there is, as you know.
1: So, why did you choose to live in McMinnville then?
2: Um, that's a good question. We debated it for a little while. Some people said to us, Live in Newburgh, you want to be closer to Portland. Um, and we just, we've always liked the community vibe in McMinnville. Mm-hmm. And um, we knew we wanted to have kids and raise a family, and we thought this would be a good place to do it. We didn't want Rob to be commuting um, an hour to Portland, especially during harvest when he was working in Dundee. So, anyway, we just kind of took a chance on it. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: We kind of drew a circle one hour drive time around Portland, and, and I would say Maria, being from Chicago, uh, Moving to Portland is more of a city girl, and I think she. It would be nice to to be there. Pied um, a terre would be nice someday in our future, but um, it was sort of Hood River, or McMinnville, or commute from Portland, and we were Hood River was a little even though it's lovely there it's a little kind of it was more cl- more close. We like Yakima mm-hmm. and we were done with that and we saw a lot of culture in a little tiny town called McBinville and I think that drew, drew us both here.
2: I don't think we ever thought about living in Hood River while you were working at ERAF.
0: Well, I, not but <laughs> previous to that. <laughs> that would have
2: been about. really a commute. Okay, well anyway, <laughs> it was next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we moved here in so 1994.
0: We, yeah. And And that was interesting because um, Dick Erath hired me and Maria had to stay back in Yakima to to facilitate when we could move because we didn't know where we were going to live and Dick Erath, so we had met him, we liked him, we knew him to some degree. I'd known him from the early 80s but um, he was in Europe for I want to say three weeks and well, why don't you just live at my house? So we didn't have a place to live, and
2: she didn't have a place to live. You had to edit this out. We don't need to talk about living in Dick and Jones' house. That is no, that is not interesting, and it's the point kind is of weird. We didn't have a place to live. Okay, fine, but then we got a place to live. Okay, okay that, all of that you can take okay. out. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, where did we live? Like, the interesting thing there? about <laughs> you going to e is that you were the first winemaker that Dick had hired and actually called the winemaker. Because before that, he had done all the winemaking hisel- himself. And he was reluctant to give that up, that control and... Um, to give that roll up, but he had hired somebody, obviously Rob, who had been a full-fledged winemaker in his own right at a winery that made, I don't remember how much wine you made at Staten Hills, but 20,000 cases maybe. And um, so he was, you know, once Rob got there and got comfortable, he was was, uh, better with letting Rob actually make decisions about making the wine, et cetera but it was it was an interesting that was an interesting period we were rob worked there for almost i think 9 years And meanwhile, um, I actually went to work as the assistant to the then director at at the Pinot Noir celebration. Remember I said I had a background in event planning. I went to work for Pat Dudley, who was the executive director at the time, and after about six months of working together, she looked at me and she said, I've just been waiting for you. I'm ready to give this job up and (laughs) you're going to take it. So um, shortly after that, I became the executive director of IPNC, which. you know, obviously had played a significant role in our lives already. And then um, I was working there and when actually when we got pregnant with our first child, and um, he, Joe, was born on the Saturday of one of the event weekends, so on Saturday morning. (laughs) We went through the whole event on Friday. I was nine months pregnant. Woke up on Saturday morning in hard labor, called up Pat and said, I'm having this baby, you got to come in and take over the rest of the event. Which she did, because she was still close enough to be able to do that. (laughs) And um, our son's name is William Joseph. And people immediately, at the salmon bank that evening when his birth was announced, people immediately started referring him to as Billy Joe Pino. (laughs) (laughs) Last summer... I told you he's uh, in mass communications here at Linfield, and last summer he interned uh, as the, doing social media for IPNC, and when he was walking around campus, there were people who said, wait, are you Joe Stewart? You're Billy Joe Pino? <laughs> <laughs> 20 years later. So anyway, but then after our second child was born, I left the position at IPNC, and um, Amy Wesselman became the executive director, and then, this was so now we're in 1999, and um, I went to work at Erath. Eventually, I did some freelance event planning and other things. But I went to work at Erath as well, um, managing the tasting room and doing events there. And Dick and Joan Erath really wanted us; they wanted to sell the winery, and they wanted us to buy it. Um, because none of their children were interested in owning the winery. something that happens a lot. You're seeing a lot of it now mm-hmm. um, in either succession or sale of a winery. Um, but that was when... So we did actually try to do that uh, for a year or two. We would got some investors together and and seriously pursued buying ERATH, which we obviously ended up not doing. And that was a good thing <laughs> for us. Um, and eventually Dick sold... E-Rath to Saint Michelle.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: so. But we started our winery in January of 2002.
1: And what was the what was the was there a turning point or an impetus to why you started your label and when you chose that time? Like you, what what made you ready to do it at that point?
0: Well, my. My point of view is that we knew Dick was not going to sell it to us. And there was just Eventually. We, we, every time we brought an investor to the table, he sort of didn't like that scenario. So, um, but, but the reality is he did not want he, Maria pointed out a lot of people having this issue of succession. He really didn't want to sell, but he knew he had to sell. Mm-hmm. It was like two people in the same head.
2: He wasn't quite ready.
0: And um, we were... We were working our tails off for somebody else. I was being groomed. The, the interesting thing, I was being groomed to understand the business of wine, the wine industry. And that's one aspect that I had no knowledge of. And um, Prior. So, so we saw what was going on. And we said, if we're going to work this hard, we're going to do it for ourselves. Because Dick can't make up his mind. <laughs> so we, we left. And we, and then 9-11 hit so we're like oh boy (laughs) but we we committed ourselves to do it and there are a lot of really great things that dick passed on to us um some wonderful things like a good bottle of pinot noir shouldn't cost an arm and a leg Um, we make high-end pinot noir and we make good pinot noir at a lower tier and and that's something that I think more and more people are finding out that one, that's a good business decision, and two, it's it's you're going to have more customers mm-hmm. that will grow into whatever you want them to grow into. But um, that was a that was a huge thing, and uh, appreciation for growing. Um, I was very involved in the growing side as well as the winemaking side, and we call ourselves in general our industry. We call ourselves wine growers, not winemakers or you're on or whatever (laughs) so i mean they're just little snippets over the years of things that dick passed on so there's a very good relationship there yeah
2: we have a still have a great relationship with him
0: but But i i just want to put a little point of information in here so to give you a perspective of what i've seen i started out in the Oregon wine industry when there were 34 wineries in the state and now there's over 700 and what was interesting for me I, I totally immersed myself in this industry and while in Southern Oregon at Valley View Vineyard, I was part of a founding chapter and I was the young kid of the Oregon Wine Growers Association. So we had four regions at that time and what was instrumental to my understanding of the rest of the state is every quarter a bunch of us from Southern Oregon would drive up somewhere, Eugene or Portland or wherever, Corvallis, and meet with the other regions and that welded, for me, um, better communication with the people like uh, David Adelsheim, Dick Ponzi, certainly Dick Erath. Um,
2: Terry Castile.
0: Terry Castile. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- these are all, and there, there are a lot of names that I'm, I'm not saying right now. But sure. But it just, it immersed me in this community that was statewide. Mm-hmm. And there weren't a lot of us. So. Um, And
2: that was the beginning of, you you always hear about how the Oregon wine industry is so collaborative. And a little bit, those of us who've been around a long time kind of take that for granted because (laughs) that's just the way we are. It's Mm -hmm. just the way we've lived and uh, grown in this industry together. And um, when we talk about what's the future of the Oregon wine industry, that's something that... um, we, and others of us, are working very hard to protect and maintain that collaborative spirit. Sure. Um, I did want to go back to something that you said about um, Dick, Erath rath and um, making affordable, more affordable Pinot Noir. For a long time, Oregon had a reputation of um, making beautiful Pinot Noirs, but they were way too expensive for most people to afford, mm-hmm. and um, it is expensive to make wine here, but uh, we also, part of our philosophy in founding our winery, and just our life's philosophy, it goes back to what I was saying before about building community, we want people to be able to afford to drink wine every day. And we drink wine every day, we have a bottle of Pinot Noir on our table, we think other people should have that too. It's one of the great pleasures of life, it's part of good health and good eating, and um, so Our goal when we started, and our first vintage was 2001, um, was to make um, a Pinot Noir that tasted like wonderful classic Oregon Pinot Noir, but cost less than $20 a bottle. And that was, we created the label for that, which we call our Big Fire label. And we have maintained that for the last um, 17 years. Um, We still make Big Fire Pinot Noir and Big Fire Pinot Gris that cost hopefully just under twenty dollars in different cities it ends up being a different amount, depending but um, if you come into the winery, they cost eighteen and nineteen dollars respectively mm-hmm. and um, that's really, really important to us and that 's something that Rob, I think does so well is because we don't own a vineyard, we buy our fruit from a dozen, 16 different vineyards around the valley, he's able to take all of those different lots of fruit and blend them into one wine that is perfectly balanced with the right amount of fruit and acid and just deliciousness to go with food. And he can do that because he has such a, an array of vineyards to work with. Sure. And it's really integral to the R. Stewart philosophy to make great Oregon Pinot Noir that is a tremendously good value, and, and we, as he said, we make the big fire wines, we make, we make wines that are priced from starting at $18 up to $75. Um, but in all cases, we want it to be really accessible for people. Sure.
1: What were some of the challenges you faced as you were starting your own winery work, especially, especially sort of unforeseen challenges that you were not anticipating starting your own label? Well,
0: first of all, legal fees. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, that's true. I will give Maria accolades in that at the time when you, there, there are different compliance licensing issues. And um, so you, you it kind of you think you work, you have to file with the federal government, you have to file with the state government, you have to be fine with the county and fine with the city and you think that it should be federal government down but really the compliance starts from the city up because there are permitting issues and all that stuff. And um, What was impressive to me, I can't remember which was which, but Maria and at the time, I mean there were wineries starting up that it would take them one year to get all this stuff in place. And Maria made that was her full time job. She was the compliance person to start up for startup. And we got our I think it was the federal permit in five weeks and then the state permit in six weeks. And that was really impressive because it was a full-time job. As you send a paperwork in to some bureaucrat and it sits on their desk and you call them up and they said, well, I can't really find it. Um, oh, here it is under a stack of 12 papers.
2: Well, the thing is, we didn't have the luxury to take a year to start making money, mm-hmm. frankly. We left our day jobs working for ERAS in the end of December of 2001. And we had our first bottle of wine, Big Fire Pinot Gris, out in the market in March of 2002. Wow! And that was possible because we worked really hard at getting ourselves legal and ready to go. Um, Also, there were several factors to that. We had a lot of experience. We had worked for in the wine business uh, for then already, you know, some 15 whatever years. I can't do the math that fast, but. Um, and so we knew what we were getting into and we were also, um, had worked with distributors all around the country who sold Rob's wine under the Erath label and they were willing to take a chance on us and say, okay, great, we know, we know you, we know Rob makes great wine, sign it up, sure. we'll do it. And so while we didn't have, I mean, we definitely had thats kind of, you know, the big fire name kind of comes from this sense of passion and urgency about, okay, we got to do this. Let's go. We're (laughs) jumping from the frying pan to the fire here. And, um, but we didn't have big jobs at Intel or Nike or being attra- attorneys or whatever. A lot of people have 10 another... Ten million, of dollars doing something. Right, like. that's what I mean. <laughs> a lot of people have other jobs where they're like, oh, I think I'll start a winery. And they've, you know, we didn't have that. So we had to really get busy and... Um, and we did, and that's why we created the Big Fire label, too. At the time, it was very, um, it was kind of cutting edge. There weren't a lot of labels that were that contemporary looking, and um, we call them the forest and the fauna names, you know, like this creek and that river and this mountain. Those were the names of the wineries this in the deer, world this deer that and that at that point. <laughs> and <This> my dog. <laughs> we needed a wine that was going to stop somebody you know the package had to stop the them from walking down the aisle grab their eye and the wine had to get into their shopping cart so the way it worked in the beginning for us the very first vintage that we released was 2001 the 2001 vintage was a huge year in terms of yield. And so there were a lot of wineries who had bulk wine on the market, which is something that happens quite frequently in the wine industry, where a winery will say, oh, I've got this lot of wine, whether it's 100 gallons or 500 gallons, and they'll say, you know, oh, we can't use this, so we're gonna sell it in bulk. Um,
0: and e had a so e had a lot of excess wine that year. And one of the things that smoothed the waters a little bit with Dick Heerath was that, well, we're leaving, but we will pay you money for a lot of this wine. Buy all your extra wine. (laughs) Um, So So it was
2: really consistent because Rob had started it, you know, when when he called the pick dates and the harvest of 2001. And then we were able to bring the wine to our converted granary in here in downtown McMinnville. And he was able to finish it and we bought from other people as well, Archery but Summit, and I don't remember who the, else. The
0: logistics were crazy though, because we we knew we wanted to buy this wine. Uh, we had no place to bottle it. We didn't actually physically have wine in our hands because we didn't have a legal place to have it. Um, we didn't have a bottling line. We 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 had we had nothing. It was like almost like out of thin air. But what was interesting is. So from December 31st, when that was two weeks after we let Dick and Joan know that we were leaving, we, by May 1, we had bottled our first wine, Big Fire Pinot Gris, and the only way we were able to do that is coordinating with, uh, so I called up um, John Davison, one of the principals of Walnut City Wine Works, and they were, quite new at the time, too, and I said, John, I need a place to legally bring the wine from ERAF to bottle, and John said, well, I really don't have a bottling line that, that, you know, like I have a little hand filler thing, and then, so then um, I knew Mike Applin, who's very instrumental on the bottling world of, of our wine industry, he, he, that's another subset story, but a very helpful person. He moved in a bottling line temporarily at Walnut City we got the wine bond to bond transferred into Walnut City to bottle. We pulled in a bottling crew of like whoever we could find. <laughs> we bottled in two days, and then um, we couldn't physically move that bottled wine to our facility till we had our license yet. So it had to stay at Walnut City very very short time, and we knew it was the licensing was coming up quickly. But this um, was
2: March, by the way, not May.
0: Yeah, and no, what we released the wine by May, so we. It was March.
1: <laughs> May one,
0: <laughs> I have the records. It's fine, <laughs> and, and so um, so we had to pull this all together, and then Mike Haplan had to dismantle his bottling line, take it back to wherever, and um, this was
2: before the days of mobile bottling lines. Right. Yeah, yeah,
0: right. And uh, so we we're just fortunate to have again that collaborativeness, the collaborative spirit of this industry. We were able to pull from here and here and here and get people to help us um put this together and and we got that wine on the market it's the, the first order i can't remember where it was i think it was at georgia atlanta georgia we shipped our first big fire pinot green 2001. so that was a challenge but we we just you know we kind of had this um i don't know what the term is but blind belief that things can happen if you just keep pushing and
2: optimism it's called optimism <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, you we would never you would never <laughs> you would never enter into this kind of uh endeavor if you didn't have some kind of like just really resilient optimism because it's hard work. It's very, very hard work. It's very rewarding and we love it, but it's we work really hard. Hmm. And um as does as do all our colleagues, I mean, true. we're certainly not the only ones, but it's it's a tough way to make a living, but if you but you if you have to work, you should do something you love, and we love this. So,
0: and, and I will say, um, I don't know if I'm speaking for you on this or not, but I'm one of those people that, if someone says you can't do that, that's that, I'm doing it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. Did you have any trepidation about working with each other and uh, and? And how did you? How yes. have you? How? <laughs> and how have you made it work both at Erath and now, now on your own? You can answer that. One. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, um,
1: first you had
0: said yes, so now you have to back that. All <laughs> uh, right.
2: right. Um, one thing is that we have a very clear separation of responsibilities. Rob does the winemaking. I do the marketing, and. I certainly don't tell him how to make wine, because I don't know how to make wine. Sometimes he tries to tell me how to market the wines. And he often has good ideas. Other times I have to give him a script and say, "Okay, this is exactly what you can say. (laughs) Um, But uh, (laughs) the good news is, you know, uh, again, we really share values about what the way we want our wine to taste, the way we want it to be perceived in the world, and the way we want to market it and sell it. And so um, mostly we see eye to eye on those things. It is challenging. The hardest part, of course, is turning it off at the end of the day. And um, we're not very good at that. We, um, partly also because we work in separate places. So my office is at home, which we started doing from the very beginning because the kids were little and that just gave me more flexibility um, to be available for them. And Rob's office is at the winery. So we don't, I mean, we're not like one office away from each other where we can just yell over and go, hey, tell, let's talk about this. So we end up talking about a lot of times over dinner, et cetera, which is probably not the healthiest thing in the world. But we try, we really try to stop. And... Um, uh, we make appointments with each other once We in a do. We <laughs> have to make appointments to go over our calendars and that kind of thing.
1: You noticed that while I was scheduling your, your interview. Yes, right.
2: You like And we're very busy. And Rob travels a lot for the winery. He does most of the national sales now. And um, so it's it's complicated. We have three kids. We have, you know, between part-time and full-time, we have Um, 10-ish employees, um, many of whom feel like part of our family, feel feel like kids to us, Mm -hmm. and... um, Many of them
0: Linfield grads. Yes, it's true.
2: (laughs) And, uh, And we're busy in the community. We're involved in a lot of things. Mostly we just keep going. We just keep going forward, and life keeps rolling on. And it's always great when we come around to harvest in the fall because... Um, It's a time of year when everything else kind of recedes into the background and we get to do the things that we really love the most. Rob gets to make wine, he gets to be out in the vineyard looking at the grapes, deciding when to pick. He gets to have the fruit coming into the winery and all the bustle and activity of that and, um, and he doesn't really have to I mean we kind of get a pass nobody expects you to go to a meeting during harvest (laughs) or um even you know you don't have to worry about like sales or taxes or insurance or all those other things that come along with a business and then the other piece of harvest that's really important to us and it's really a big part of the r stewart culture is um that we every day during harvest i cook for our whole harvest crew um and it started out when the very beginning um, we wanted to take really good care, care of the people who came to work harvest for us. Um, and there are some people who come every year. There are three guys who have worked harvest with Rob since over twenty years. Uh, since the erath days, and um, we call them the three clowns. We have a wine named after them, and. Um, and then there are um, other people who you know, are permanent employees. There are also people who just come and work for Harvest, whether they come for a week or they work for four weeks or they're a sales rep in Chicago and they want to come and spend a long weekend just getting their hands dirty and really seeing what it's like. Um, it's kind of a lot of people coming and going during Harvest, but in the very beginning when we started our winery, we said, we will take care of extra care of these people and we will feed them every day, which is something that is very traditionally done mm-hmm. in, the, in all agricultural industries. But um, at first when we started the winery and it was really just those three guys that whom I mentioned a minute ago, the three clowns and Rob making the wine. And we had two, our boys were like three and four years old, our third child wasn't born yet, and um, I would schlep dinner over to the winery every night with the little kids in tow, and we'd sit around there on some makeshift table situation and eat dinner, and then I'd schlep the kids and the dirty dishes back home again, do the dishes, put the kids to bed, and these guys would keep working, and about the second year I was like, okay, wait a minute, there could be an easier way here. And Rob said, you know, we could just come to you. I mean, we only live six blocks from the winery. They can take a break, right? So that was when it started, that they came to our house every night for dinner. And that tradition continues on today. And it's really a big part of our culture, mm-hmm. of our steward is bringing people together, feeding them a lot of celebrating people, bring different wines from all over the world that they want to share. And the conversations are always great. We have a big, huge table that seats like 16 people. and. Or more, it just expands to fit ho- however many happen to be there that day, and I cook these big, huge dinners, and um, and it's really I would say that that is really the best time of the year for us yeah. because we both get to do the thing we love the most.
0: We have we have great conversations not only about politics but also um, I remember discussing the word epiphany one time. Is it a epiphany or is it an epiphany? <laughs>
2: It is an epiphany. Uh, no, we know that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but I mean we get it off and if you think there's uh, There's
2: always great music, great somebody music. playing the guitar or something. Yeah. It's
0: it's uh, it's a great time. And we talk a little bit about wine too, but uh, we always toast Maria. No. She she cooked six weeks straight for a, a crew last year.
2: It's great. It's fun, I love it. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of the answer to how we work together. Other I mean we just, we just keep going, and we figure it out, and sometimes we disagree, but usually we can come around to a manageable agreement. The one thing that we always try really hard to do is not put our employees in the middle, because that would not be fair. So, yeah.
1: So, Rob, tell me a little about your winemaking philosophy and sort of how you've developed it over the years.
0: I suspect that most winemakers, I haven't really done a survey on this, but make wine the way they think it should taste, the way they like, you know, what they like about wine. And I think to back up a little bit, when people come to me and say, well, I want to be a winemaker, or I want to be in the wine industry, I say, well, first of all, take a vow of poverty, um, and do you, can you work hard? Because, you know, the hours can be terrible and um, you better have passion because that's what's going to get you through. And you can you can see, you know, there's a good percentage of them that just walk away like, oh, I thought I was going to make, you know, a ton of money and this is going to be like a very famous world.
2: Have a fancy chateau on a hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: used to say wearing berets and sitting in cafes. But, um, so, what I do tell them though is first you need to know the basics and Valley View in Southern Oregon from 81 to 84 was what I called my boot camp and I just like learn how to grow grapes learn how to ferment grapes learn you know just learn the basic technique and then ultimately um, the last year at Valley View I was like well you know I made this one and I made this one I wonder if these go together and I just started doing that and the winemaker at the time, um, his name was John Eagle, would come in for 15 minutes a day and sort of, I'll just say it nicely, give me instructions, and then leave. And he said, he said when I was doing that, he said, oh, I never thought of that. You, you, and you have a pretty good palate, and, you know, good job. So that idea of blending and, and not just saying this wine is from here and this wine is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, is from here, and, 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 and the sidebar is that Oregon, Oregon Pinot Noir is all about terroir, we can get into that later or not. But, um, but my philosophy has been, what if you take several terroir, can you make something better? And, you know, I said old, was it Pythagoras or whatever, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts or something, I'm not saying that correctly, but that was the idea. No, you are. And, and for me, so that's one. One important aspect of it, and then it's about balance. And every winemaker has their own perspective of what balance is. And to, and, and to tell you, when I worked for Dick Erath, what I realized, and I think we all have different attributes, and I don't know what the counter to an attribute is, but um, you know, one man's ceiling is another man's floor, one man's ability is another man's disability. But what I learned is Dick Erath was more sensitive to acid and I was more sensitive to tannin mm. so he and I would be working on blend and he, he would say well no I don't like that you know too much acidity in it. and then and, and we'd go over to his little blend and I said well you know it's pretty tannic. He right? <laughs> says no it isn't and well his name, it, it was his winery so in the end I felt like his wines were always a little more tannic than mine and so i realized that the fact that i couldn't perceive acid as well and and i we all perceive it but i couldn't perceive it as well as him was affecting the way i make wine and and the same with his inability to perceive Mm tannin so you know that's not a good or bad thing it's just it is the way it is so stylistically i make wines that i like from my perspective the balance Um, Fruit is so important, and philosophically a lot of New Oak. I tell people New Oak tastes like Jack Daniels. I do not like Jack Daniels, and I certainly don't want it in my Pinot Noir. So we use older Oak because that's about um, oxidizing. You need oxidation of wine on a micro level to make it mature. I want that to happen, but I don't want to flavor the heck out of my wine. So we don't use a lot of New Oak. So stylistically, um, our wines are not fruit bombs, but the fruit is obvious. I want to reflect the vineyards Mm -hmm. that are involved in it. I remember years ago, um, it was the first or second um, Oregon Pinot Camp, and it was uh, Ken Wright, Lisa Ponzi, myself, I can't remember who else was there. And we were having a panel about single vineyard designated Pinot versus blending. can of course and he's he's not the first one to think of it but he was the first one to really promote it in oregon it's all about uh, terroir it's all about that place and that is true you, you pinot noir does reflect its place and louisa pond he was like well uh, it was sort of with me you know blending you know blending makes uh, you know that's what's important to us and i do remember it was the one time when Ken was in public, and we were all there having this conversation, I said, so Ken, are you saying that single vineyards are better than blended wines? And he said, no, that's what I prefer. So he, was, he has always espoused his philosophy, mm-hmm. I have always espoused mine. Um, Louisa was funny because she believed in blending, but then she said, but if you have a vineyard 40 years old, well, she was one of the few that had a vineyard 40 <laughs> years old, then it's all about terroir. So it, you know, everything is subjective in this industry. That's, there's no right or wrong.
2: But we do both. We so do we, both. we have our flagship Pinot Noirs, Big Fire, Love Oregon, Vignette, and Autograph are blended. And when we say blended, just for anybody who's listening to this who might not understand, we don't mean a variety of grapes. We mean a v- Pinot Noir from a variety of sites. Mm-hmm. It, but it's 100% Pinot Noir. Um, those are all blended but we also do five or six single vineyard pinots every year, mostly because they're interesting to us. Not because we think that they're making a better wine. We don't, actually. The, we think the blended wines are more perfectly, are more perfect, basically, because they're, they're perfectly balanced. Rob is the master of balance. He makes beautiful wines that are the perfect amount of acid, just the right amount of gentle tannin, and the fruit shines through so that you really know um, that you're drinking an Oregon Pinot Noir. And they always go beautifully with food. And so we make, we, we make wines in both ways. And, and some people prefer the single vineyards and some people prefer the blended wines, and that's fine. The single vineyards we do in tiny quantities. We do like 50 or 100 cases of those. Um, it's not really what we, base our business on, but they're still important and interesting and fun.
0: So, just briefly about the whole winemaking style, what I do tell people is you start here with the technique of winemaking, and you have a vision out there, and the fun is trying to get from here to make that, which is only in your mind. It's not... I mean, you can go out and taste wines from all over the world, and that gives you an idea of what you like, but you have to have a vision. And this is not just in winemaking for me, this is like anything you do. You have to have a vision of where you want to be, and then the fun is that road of getting there with the basics of what you learned. Mm-hmm. This hard, hard work.
2: Sure. Also, uh, just about the oak subject that Rob brought up. We don't buy a lot of new oak barrels, and um, you probably are aware that a new French oak barrel costs anywhere from 1500 to $3,000, probably more, I don't really keep track of that now. But um, because we buy maybe one or two of those a year, and we, instead, we buy a bunch of secondhand barrels, usually from our friend Steve Dorner, who's the winemaker at christom for $50 a barrel that he's used for three years and he's finished with, Um, Not only does that work with our philosophy of wine making and the way we like the wine to taste, but it also works for our philosophy of pricing the wines and Mm -hmm. our business model of making more affordable wine for people to be able to access. And so it's kind of a very serendipitous um, aspect to what we do. A Lot of wineries spend a lot of money on barrels and we don't have to do that, which is good.
1: So let's talk about your marketing philosophy and you obviously came into the Oregon wine industry with a background in selling wine and selling Oregon wine Mm -hmm. and I'm guessing they gave you a nice advantage when you started, but how have you sort of developed your your, uh, philosophy for selling wine over the years?
2: Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, One of the things that we said when we started our winery um, after working for other people in various capacities for a long time Um, as we said, that we wanted to make kind of an unwritten rule, and that was that we never wanted to sell wine to anyone we didn't want to have dinner with. And um, we've really pretty much been able to stick to that. You know, there are a lot of people in and around wine who um, are quite (laughs) taken with their wine knowledge, their wine collection, they're very proud of their cellars. Um, pretty much, if anybody tells me how many bottles of wine they have in their cellar within the first five minutes of meeting them, it's it's a pretty sure bet that we're not going to be very good friends, <laughs> because that's just not something that's very important to us. Uh, wine is an art. Be- making wine beautifully is an art, but it's not the kind of art you hang on your wall and look at. It's the kind of art you put on your table and drink, and so that colors everything in our philosophy of marketing the winery and the wines. It's a, the whole experience is, um, we want people to get to know us. And so for instance, when I write copy for the website or tasting notes or an email newsletter or whatever it is, um, I always write as if I'm talking to a friend because I am, you know, I, it's, it doesn't, the most important thing to me is that we cultivate relationships with our customers. And um, whichever customer it is, whether it's a wholesaler in Georgia or Chicago or Ohio or wherever, or it's a waiter who's working in the floor of a restaurant, or it's a salesperson who has a bag over their shoulder and takes samples out all day long, or if it's the person shopping in a Whole Foods in suburbia Every person who walks into our tasting room, all those people are customers of ours, and we want them to know who we are, who the real Rob and Maria Stewart are. And and so that's just basically our approach. We're pretty honest, pretty genuine. Our social media is full of pictures, snapshots that we've taken on our iPhones, not, you know, big, gorgeous commercial photography, though, I mean, we have some of that, but even the person who takes our pictures for us, when we do hire a photographer, is a friend. You know, uh, we like to do business with our friends, and we like to um, uh, we like our customers to feel like friends, and, and many of them do become friends because, um, obviously, somebody who's looking for a big fancy chateau experience, or big you know ninety nine point wines from the Spectator and fancy. Pretend, there's nothing about our Stewart winery that is pretentious, and we aim to keep it that way. And people who are attracted to us and want to buy our wines like that, usually, because they get a little bit tired of that kind of <laughs> other scenario. Sure. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just like the, in the many kinds of styles of winemaking, there are many styles of marketing and selling your wine. There are many styles of enjoying it, people can do what they're most comfortable with. And the good news is that if somebody wants that, they can. That's out there for them, but <laughs> our steward doesn't have to provide that.
1: Sure. So you talked about how you, you don't have any of your own grapes. You, you're sourcing from other vineyards. How have you developed those relationships, and have you ever thought about expanding and, and growing your own grapes?
0: Well, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I, and I, I think to talk about the growers, first of all, how we get involved with a grower is usually, um, I sort of have a rule, you got to like the people and you got to like the fruit and the price has to be right, and if all those things are in place, then there's opportunity there.
2: Are you sensing a theme? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, um, Usually it takes me about three years of working with the same vineyard to understand what is unique about that spot. This is easy to fall into the trap of, you know, this is, you pick it, because we pick on flavor. This is ripe and it tastes good and it makes this wine and that's it. But You, you, you start to learn the nuances, but you want to know what's consistent from a hot year and a cold year and a wet year and a dry year. And it takes me about three years to understand that vineyard. But, you know, back to it, I have to like the people and suspect that I like what's coming off of that property. I, I love our growers. Every one of them is a story. Every one of them, in my opinion, should be in front of this camera because these are real people do, having real
2: lives. And uh, and some of them we've worked with for 25 years. Mm-hmm.
0: Like Lee and Kathy Miller of uh in Dundee. They, um, well, there was a point in time when Dickie Rath who works, worked with many vineyards. Um, he said, I only want to work with properties that I can drive my tractor to. I mean, that was a, that was a statement he made to me. And it was right about the time when we were leaving, and a number of he had and I think he knew what he was doing with Saint Michelle by that time when he he, he sort of canceled some growers. And these are people that I've been working with for a long time. And the first phone call I got was from them, and I was afraid to do anything. From Lee and Kathy. Well, yeah, Lee and Kathy are one example, but they're, you know, they're, they're sort of not only etiquette rules, but legal things like torque or whatever, I don't know what it is, but so you don't just go poaching other vineyards. And it happens in some of our industry, but, um, but basically, so I knew probably a handful of growers when we first started our own business. And again, these are families, um,
2: you, what well, I think what you mean to say is you knew we were going to be working with them. You had identified them as sites that we were going to have rela- wor- yeah, had a working relationship with.
0: Yeah, learning the vineyard and what it produced wasn't a problem. And then, sure. But then as time moved on and as we grew our business up to the level we are now, which is like twenty to twenty-two thousand cases a year, um, you would gradually add in a, a grower. Someone would approach us and say, you know, I have this fruit and you know, would you be interested? And we, we, you know, we do like some trials. You know, one, do I like these people, and we don't know them, and two, do I like the result? And that's how we brought in to the fold, if you will. Um, what's What's interesting? Um, we now control two vineyards, if you will. One is Cording Hill, uh, which is up in Banks. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Lydon is 97 this year. Um,
2: oh, you should a sweet, him
0: sweet person and uh, he, he and his wife Helen uh, left New York and moved to Oregon in a rainy year and they basically planted, they, he retired and they planted their vineyard in 1983, <laughs> but uh, wonderful. He
2: had a long career in the music industry before that, he's a fascinating guy.
0: And um, so we have all, I think it's about 31 acres of Cording Hill and uh, just this past year we now control a vineyard called Daffodil Hill and Judy Phipps uh, Mickelson, Judy Phipps Mickelson, and her husband planted the vineyard in like 98, 99. It's down in Yola Amity. it's a west-facing slope on volcanic soil, stunning, stunning vineyard. It's one of, you know, it's one of our single vineyards every year and um, just sweet, sweet people. Sadly. Phil did not see. He came down with cancer, but the 2003 Daffodil that was our first year making it, and he was never able to see the label, and you know he didn't survive long enough. But Judy has been with us since then, and you know every one of our heroes I can talk about. There's a story mm-hmm. with each one of them, so that's very important, and I think it's important for our consumers that are interested to know that story. So Maria works hard at telling that story sure. through all our channels. Mm-hmm. If you will. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely, yeah.
2: And so when Rob says that we control the vineyard that means that um, we he makes all the decisions about the farming and he hires somebody at a company who manages vineyards to work with him and, and the people who are in the field are telling him what they're seeing because he can't get out there every two days. But um, basically it means that we, we ultimately control all the fruit and some of it we sell to other wineries um, because we can't necessarily use all the fruit from those two vineyards in our in-house. But um, it's kind of a fluid situation. It changes from vintage to vintage depending on what the yields are and depending on what our needs are in the winery, et
0: but I, I I laugh because um, when I'm out doing national sales and people say to me, well, you have a you have a contract, right? And then some of them we do, some of them we don't. And these are all like handshake deals. And our legal counsel, uh, Chris Herman, still raises, you need a you need a contract, a locked in contract with these people. <laughs> and I, no, these are these are friends and family, and there is some liability there that we might lose that supply. But it's consistent see from growers is important to us and the relationship even though we pay them for fruit they're our customer it goes back to everyone's our customer sure we have to keep we, we cultivate and and maintain that relationship
2: okay. with pleasure yeah. it's, it's really it's really important to us and we really enjoy it too sure Well. Yeah
1: talk a little bit about your relationship with Linfield, since you have so many different uh, relationships with the school, starting with meeting at IPNC and sending a child here. So you talk a little bit about IPNC to start with. Uh, You you took over IPNC when Mm -hmm. it was pretty young still. So tell me a little bit about your experiences with that and and sort of future between now and then uh, experiences at IPNC.
2: Well, um, so IPNC is the International Pinot Noir Celebration is so instrumental to how the Oregon wine industry has um, become what it is today. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the history, some people don't know that the history of the IPNC is actually um, was started, it was actually a group of local McMinnville business people who said, look at all these wineries popping up here. It was the McMinnville Chamber of Commerce. We should have a wine festival. And um, so those people, those business people, um, Ken Patton is one name that comes to mind. He was at Hewlett-Packard when Hewlett-Packard was here, right here. Right here. And um, uh, they went to the wine community and the founding wine growers and Nick Pirano, who had Nick's Italian Cafe and said, we want to have a wine festival. Let's have a wine festival. Maybe it should be a competition and again true to the spirit of the Oregon wine community um, they didn't want to have a competition they wanted to have a celebration and they had this idea that if they invited wine growers from all over Pinot Noir producers from all over the world it could be this great meeting of the minds and an educational and celebratory event and so eventually that's what it became and um, and it's really one of the things that makes the IPNCs very unique in wine events around the country um, is the the strict maintenance maintain, maintaining that celebratory spirit and the balance of education and fun through the weekend. so um, in the the very first year. It sold out. That was before my time. I think it, that were about 150 people then. Um, the first year that we came in 1990, I think it was up to maybe 300. Again, still selling out. Um, Everybody fit
0: Dylan Hall. Right. You <laughs> know that that couldn't happen now. And um,
2: and now it's up to. I'm not exactly positive, but I think about 700 people, six or 700 people, and that is possible because of half the attendees going off campus one day and the other half staying on campus. And then coming together, it's always been uh, really important to bring people together in the evening for the dinners so that everybody knows they're at the same event. And it's always been really important to keep the event small. You know, there was a time when I was director where we were selling out, like, you know, we'd sell out literally in 24 hours the entire event and it's a three-day event that starts on friday morning and goes until sunday at noon and um and it would sell out i mean we would send out the um at the time it was a printed brochure that we would send out snail mail and um and people would hit people's mailboxes And they had to fill out the entry form and fax it back. And literally, I'd come into work the next morning and there would be faxes all over the floor. It was like a sea of fax paper. And we'd be sold out. And it was really important to have the timestamp on the fax. You guys don't even really know what that is. but um, It was really important to have the timestamp on the fax so that you um, knew when they came in because half of those forms those people would be on a waiting list um, it was in my tenure that the board decided to institute a lottery for tickets which was very very difficult to implement because there were a lot of hurt feelings along mm-hmm. the way because their people had been coming since it was some people treat it like their summer camp they want to come every year and um, and that's a wonderful thing that's a great compliment but um, it also precluded than any new people coming. If the same, at the time it was 500 people were attending every year, then no new people get to come. And the mission of the event is to sped, spread the love of Pinot Noir. Sure. So, um, so it's changed a lot over the years when I, um, after I left and Amy took over as the executive director, And that was in, again, 1999. And um, uh, eventually, Rob, I think, became a board member. And it's a volunteer organization. I mean, it's a nonprofit organization that's run by a very small staff and a lot of volunteers. And so the board of directors is made up of volunteers. And Rob was a board member for, um, I don't know, six years or something. longer,
0: because I was for ERAP. And then when I left, when we left Iraq, I sort of stayed on the board and then I said, You know, shouldn't I go off? And they said, no, 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 you need to stay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The thing is, it's a working board and you get a job and, and you work. Yeah, and it's not paid or anything. But and then, well. One way or another, we were involved for 20 years straight. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're taking a break. Of <laughs> the
2: 32 <laughs> events, we, I think we've attended um, in one capacity or another, either as staff a board member, featured winery, um, I, I think it's, I've counted like 27 of the events. Wow. Yeah. So then after Rob had a long tenure as a board, then there was like a year break, and then I was on the board for eight years, and so I think it was crazy? eight years. <laughs> I can't remember, but I just, I did that, that tenure just stopped last year. So last year I was president emeritus, and this year, we're sitting out the IPNC, which is very odd. It's very unusual to, like, have it going on and not be... We've only done that a couple of times. But I don't think we've ever been in town before when we haven't been here. No. Anyway, um, our 15-year-old daughter is babysitting for one of the California winemakers' <laughs> little kids during the weekend. So we're weekend still of, yeah, so we'll still be, we'll still be here. Yeah, but it's a fantastic event, and it really is... Um, It really showcases the best of Oregon, even though we're hosting these other wineries from around the world. um, It's yet one more opportunity where people comment on the wonderful community spirit of the Oregon wine community. And um, we work together to make it happen. We work together to put on the best event we can with the most interesting seminar topics. Which are thought about, you know, two or three years easily in advance. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, if you want to create, if you want to ask four winemakers to create a specific wine to talk about on this panel, they have to do, they have to know about it two or three vintages before they're going to present it. So um, it's a lot of planning. It's a lot of time, and it's um, very, very important that the quality of the event remains high. Oh, I was going to say this that. When the event was selling out so quickly, um, and it still sells out every year. Maybe it didn't during the recession for a couple of years, but um, but now it's you know tickets go on sale in February and it sells out in April. It's much more civilized, mm-hmm. um, but uh, because we can handle more people for one reason, one thing. But we did spend a lot of time talking about whether to move the event away from Linfield to a potentially bigger venue. I can't remember, we looked at other colleges like um, Pacific University and um, places in Portland, other potential places to have the event, um, so that we could grow it, so that it would get beyond 500 people, which w- we were limited to at the time. And, um, and we all made a really conscious decision. The board and the staff at the time all felt it was really, really important to keep the event in McMinnville, to keep it at Linfield, and to preserve the very special nature of it, where we didn't want to become like other food and wine festivals, where there were 2,000 people, because that's not what people love about it. What Mm -hmm. people love about it is that they can sit down at a dinner table and oh they just happen to randomly be sitting with some winemaker whom they've always wanted to meet or never heard of or whatever (laughs) it is but it's this great people refer to it as you know it's like a big family reunion. It is if you come back a lot but either way it's just so much fun and you leave being a part of the family. So, um, the other thing that the Pinot Noir celebration that is in the IPNC philosophy is that we do not have any kind of sponsorship. It's something else that we have looked into to perhaps try to keep the ticket price down um, and you know different companies have wanted to come and sponsor the event, Mercedes-Benz or um, other, you can imagine, other big <laughs> companies and we have always politely declined that because we did not want to be owned by anybody. We wanted to be able to make independent choices that are the best thing for the event and the best thing for the Oregon wine industry. And um, and we're very, very, um, we're very devoted to that. It's funny because in 32 years, I keep saying, I think it's the 32nd, it might be the 33rd, um, there have only been Susan Sokolblosser, Corby Wright, Pat Dudley, me, Amy Wesselman, Whitney Schubert. Six executive directors, did I get everybody? I think so. Six executive directors of this this event in 32 years. That's pretty incredible. I mean, now Amy has the longest tenure for sure because she was in office for um, eight or 10 years and then Whitney came in and was only here for a couple of years and then Whitney had to move on. and then Amy came back. One of the things that we had always done before that is we had cultivated, like Pat did with me, the next director. So I say, I joke about it and I say, it's like we've all been married to the same man. Because it's such, you have such an intimate relationship and it's not like other nonprofit organizations that would have an executive director because it's a nonprofit organization. It's also an event, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, the entire thing focuses on putting on one weekend. Well, now too, because of the Oregon Chardonnay celebration. So it's it's a very unique position, and it has um, uh, it's grown and it's changed. But sometimes we still get called together for a powwow. Mostly Amy and Pat and I, because the three of us has worked have worked closely. Amy will call and say, "Can I talk to you guys? Let's let's work through this." And um, that happens less and less the further away we get from it, but <laughs> the, it still does. The sisters of the order, right? <laughs> That's
0: <laughs> right. And, and I will just say, being married to one of them is an interesting, um, I think... Oh, yeah,
2: people, the husbands always get roped the, in.
0: The husbands of these women, you know, they're, I need this, I need that. Right. And, and I don't know if I should tell my
2: story. You don't need to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Linfield, I think, you know, you asked about our relationship with Linfield, and we have, I mean, I think it started because I was on staff at uh, IPNC and therefore worked very closely with the staff of Linfield to put the event on. Um, And just through the years, we've watched this grow from kind of a small college that was, I I don't even know how to describe it, um, a little bit podunk, I guess, to um, an institution that has really upped its game and offers um, a very, very high quality education, we have found, um, you know, when our son, our oldest son, who's just finished his junior year here, um, was looking at schools, we didn't even, none of us even thought that he would go to Linfield. We all assumed he would go away because when you're 18, that's what you should probably do. And um, he was dead set on going to um, one of the W's, Whitman. Um, He was sure that's where he was gonna go to school. Well, after, at first he wanted to go to U of O because he wanted to be in the journalism department there, but it was really important to me and um, also to Rob, but I'm so much more vocal about it, that he go to a small school, so um, because, at least for the first two years, because um, uh, I just wanted him to be able to get on his feet and manage that new level of independence and responsibility in a smaller situation. So, uh, we got a postcard in the mail from the admissions department inviting us to come to a senior walk-around day here at Linfield, and I said, you know, Joe, we should just go do this because it's right here and we should be looking at lots of different schools and, and why not?" And he said, okay, fine. And then um It was on one of the Monday holidays in the winter, like President's Day or something like that. And uh, the night before was Sunday night. And I said, okay, now remember, Joe, we gotta be at Linfield at eight tomorrow morning. So even though there's no school, you gotta get up. And he said, I don't wanna get up. I don't even wanna go there. Why are we even going? We're not going, I don't need to go to that day. And I said, well, look, dude, you RSVP'd that you were coming. And I have friends who work in the admissions department. So we're not not showing up. We're going whether you wanna go to school there or not. And uh, so, with significant grumbling, he got up out of bed on what would have been a holiday in February or something, and we came over here, and, um, you know, by lunchtime, he was. V- this was where he was going to go to school, that was for sure, and he was thrilled at the opportunity. He really wants to be a sports broadcaster, and he was thrilled at the opportunity to, um, I mean, I loved the size of the school. But for a school of this size to have such a winning sports program is really unusual. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of being able to get so hands-on with the sports uh, broadcasting here just really intrigued him and the radio station, etc. And he's been calling the plays for the basketball games, the baseball games, the softball games. I think he does everything but football. I'm not sure. Do you know? Do yeah, you guys it's, know? It's, it's, I don't know. He does. Like he does everything, and uh, and he loves it. And he's. And no, I mean, if he if he was at another big state school, a big state school, studying mass communications, he wouldn't have been able to touch that kind of a role until until he was a senior, at least, and maybe not even then. Mm-hmm. So it's been great for him. It's they, been a really they great told experience. You're
0: going to have your own. Radio show in your freshman year. And he's like, really.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and next year he's going to be general manager of the radio station. So. That's awesome. Yeah, so we've been really, we've been really happy to work closely with Linfield. Um,
0: Oak and Ivy. You know, and
2: Is it Oak and Ivy? Oak and Vine. Oak and, Oak and vine. vine. Right. Oh. I didn't. That wasn't right. Um, yeah. The, there's, there's just so much opportunity, and we're just thrilled. We, individually, and the entire wine community is so pleased with everything that's happening with Linfield in wine education because we've always tried to hire Linfield students and alums. Um, I think that started when we hired um, Ann Zimmerman, was a baby, was a junior here at Linfield and in the English department, and we hired her to babysit, and um, eventually she was actually my first assistant at the winery. and uh, it's just been this pattern and it's exactly why I'm such a strong big believer in a good liberal arts education because a good liberal arts education prepares you for anything. It prepares you to be able to write, to talk, and to think critically and the world needs more of that. And I can take Anybody who is a communications major, an English major, a science major, whatever it is, and teach them everything they need to know about how to talk about our wine and working in our tasting room. But they have to have a good foundation, and a school like Linfield gives you a good foundation.
0: And then Greg Jones, I mean, that's—he's kind of like the weather god for all of us in <laughs> Oregon and, and beyond. And
2: it's a great thing.
0: When when they hired him, I like, really, okay. really. That's fantastic.
2: Mm-hmm. We're really excited to see where the program goes.
1: Good, us too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about where you see our Stewart in the next 10, 15 years. What you hope it, what you hope we it both goes. Have different point of
2: <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean we don't. We do and we don't. My sister says to me, "What's your retirement plan?" Basically, our retirement plan is to work until we fall over. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I I, I think succession or whatever, we don't know.
1: Sorry, go ahead. You're good, sorry. Okay. Um,
2: At this moment, it does not appear that any of our children are interested in being in the wine business, I'm, which is... I'm
0: kind of holding out for the next five years to to say for that to be a yes or a no, <laughs> but in the meantime, you know, I think we're still thinking about it. I think I'm good for another ten years, but... Um, <laughs> What happens from there? The, we we,
2: we have want to talk about it still. <laughs> we'll get back to you. <laughs> um, we try not to think about it too much right now, the whole succession thing. but um, Because we're still really growing our business, we're still really building our business. And um, one of the things we definitely want to do is cultivate more of our um, uh, relationships with our customers so that we have more direct. Sales, um, and there's always room for growth there, and it's the part of the business that I really love the most. Um, though it's all important, it's also important, and there are, we have great. I, now I'm repeating myself: customers and friends in all aspects of the business. But um, we also, you know, will maybe eventually own a vineyard, probably one of the two that we now are in full control of. Um, that's kind of an interesting prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're still have, we still have some, a way to go before I, we're ready to be done.
0: Often I'm asked the question, so when will you build a winery? And it's, I have to say, I, uh, maybe I'm sort of set in my ways. I love living in McMinnville. I love where our building is. Um, it's not a perfect building for making wine, but it works. We know it works. <laughs> and there's something about um, the commute you know as Nick Piranha would say you know my commute you know it's a little longer when I have to crawl home (laughs) when the winery is seven blocks away and the wine bar is halfway in between and uh, I can be anywhere in McMinnville in five minutes um, if I need to be home for something there's something about that rather than being out 20 miles out in a beautiful setting but you're not connected to your community. I love the community of this town. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have visions of having, like some people have a a second home at the coast, you know, if we're ever in the position to have something like that. Well, for me, a second home, well, for Maria, it'd be a pied-a-terre in Portland. Um, it would be a place on the coast, and it would be a place in a vineyard, <laughs> you know, 10 miles out or something.
2: We can have it all. <laughs> yeah, we're dreaming. Sure, sure, Why
0: not? Sure. But I I, can't ever see a building on a Chateau
1: on the hill. It's just not something I'm interested in. Um,
2: As a showpiece. Sure. showpiece. It's not, yeah. Sure.
1: What about the future of the Oregon wine industry in general? Where do mm. you see it going in the next decade?
2: I,
0: I've seen eb- ebbing and flowing, if that's the right mm-hmm. way to say it. Um, I've seen, well, you know, we started in 9-11. The recession was pretty tough on a lot of people. Um what's interesting is there is there there's often times where there is not enough fruit and so you see a lot of planting and then there's a time when there's too much fruit and you see planting stop and more wineries come in. It's it's kinda like this. And that's been there's at least seven cycles in my lifetime uh in, in Oregon watching that. And what I hope is that we can retain this collaborative nature, this not, you know, people outdoing each other with their pocketbook. What, mm-hmm. what, what I want to see is we, we get better. Um, you know, nowadays there, there's not a lot of room to make bad wine, mm-hmm. and in the early days there was, there was some bad <laughs> wine out there. So I think we've all grown um, as, produ- as a, an industry producing wine. I see some varietal changes, maybe, um, I would say, and it's what's so great about having Greg Jones here is that we all are very concerned about climate change. Mm-hmm. And that's going to color what we do and where we grow and that kind of thing. So we think about the future, we are not, we have some fear, but we're fearless. Does that makes sense? <laughs> um, because we know how to make wine, and we know how to grow grapes, and you know, what will that become? We, you know, I can only say it will be better, um, but there will be more wineries, but mm-hmm. there will be an attrition of wineries as well, mm-hmm. as any growth thing. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. No, it was just that, just that, you know, there will be people who come and go, but then there will be people who come here and really get it, mm-hmm. really get what the Oregon wine industry is about. And um, and we hope for more of those people, because we want to preserve this really special thing that we have here. And um, and we will keep working to do that as long as we're working. I mean, we'll continue to be on boards and committees, and and work with the city and work with the county and and work in any capacity we can to to protect that and maintain it and also demonstrate that for the next generation i think that's really really important there are a lot of young people in the wine industry now a lot of people just starting out and um, it's important for people like us to not only continue to work in the roles that we have in shaping the future of our industry but also Um, cultivating some newer people, and this is definitely happening, to come in and take those leadership positions and uh, and maintain the standards that we have established for the Oregon wine industry. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean there are wine industries all over the world and some are become more prominent than others and Oregon, well certainly the Willamette Valley and you know if I'm in Southern Oregon it's a different perspective maybe, but um, it's been so focused on primarily one grape mm-hmm. and one philosophy and what I hope is that we can protect it and that's where like these measure 39 and all that stuff you know and I, I would hate to see us become like some wine areas in California where suddenly you're you're a suburb and you're not a vineyard anymore right. mm-hmm. and that goes away so protecting the land is a big deal and. There, there is a lot of conversation in, in our industry about that, and it's a struggle because some people are, uh, just say it, are carpetbaggers. They see that it's a great place. You know, Oregon Pinot Noir it has over over any other industry and varietal. It was up seventeen percent last year, yeah. and a lot of people say that. Well, you know, I'm going to come in and make some money, uh, but then when times are tough, recession or nine eleven or whatever. Um, and it's tough, they're going to go away. And it's the people that want to stay here that are going to keep it what, the, the way it is. Yeah. So, so that that's what I hope. Um,
2: we never want this to become wine Disneyland. McMinnville in particular, I think, there's a risk sure. of that. And... Um, we're, I, for instance, I'm on the board of Visit McMinnville, and one of the reasons I wanted to participate in that was to be sure that, to really help shape the future of where we were going with McMinnville as a tourism destination. Sure. Yeah. So
0: You can't stop progress, but you can at least help shape it.
2: <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: I'm thankful for the people that started this industry, you know, the, the seven or eight families. You know, we didn't mention the Campbells, but they're part of it. The Campbells, family. important. Um, and I've always felt like, people look at me like, where are you in this timeline? And I said, well, I'm not a founder, and I'm not the second generation. I'm the half generation
2: We're kind of in the I'm middle. In the middle. <laughs> We're on the mezzanine level. You know, so
0: you're still here? And uh, yeah, um, so I, I'm fortunate to have, and Maria, in her own right, from the Chicago Selling Wine perspective. we're fortunate to know all these founders and um, some of them are gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think of David Latin for sure, and uh, you know, I mean, and I can list several names <laughs> of people that have, are not here anymore, but it's, I feel very fortunate to know the beginning.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel. Lucky. And also be part of the future.
0: Yeah, I feel lucky to be
1: here. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. This is great answers and great conversation. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.